Okay, I think we, we're going to start. So welcome back, um, everyone, for a talk on how to talk about capital targets. Um, David Kirk is a principal at Minimins and a consulting actuary. He's been involved in many different aspects of ASSA over the years, um, and he's regularly involved with thinking about capital. And I think that with the change to SAM this year, how we think about capital, how we talk about it, is changing. And certainly, I've been involved in many discussions um, in the organizations I work with as to how do we view it, what is it, wh why are we changing our definitions. So, um, David's also been involved in this because he's head of risk and actual functions for various insurers. And obviously, it's also a big issue that gets discussed in mergers and acquisitions. So, David, thank you. Thanks, Nikki, and afternoon, everyone. Uh, <clears throat> this is a, a talk about talking about talking about capital, something along those lines. Um, and capital has many different uh, definitions. We talk about political capital, we talk about social capital, we know we need capital as a country, and even in the insurance space, we have regulatory capital, economic capital, internal capital, respectability capital, available capital, all these different terms. And I have the privilege of working with a large number of different insurers, all trying to use different terms. Uh, and sometimes in that process, we realize that we don't really have necessarily the right tools to talk about capital and how much capital we need. This, the idea for this presentation really started when I was dealing with the senior management board of an entity who had recently acquired a license, and they wanted to know why they couldn't just have 1.0 times solvency capital requirement, and what was wrong with that if the requirement was that, why would they have to hold anything else? And you know, through that, the development of that discussion, I started you know, trying to develop some very, very basic, simple tools to demonstrate, uh, from my perspective, why we need to hold and why we typically do hold more than one times capital. And that really is what this talk is about today. So, I mean, this is maybe going to start out as a, a nice actual exam summary for 20 marks. The reasons we hold capital, uh, there are many of those. The three basic ones in the little balls there is that we're trying to decrease the probability of failure by having capital. When, when you read through some of the definitions that regulators in South Africa and Australia and Canada, just as three examples have, that comes through fairly clearly. But even aside from decreasing the probability of failure, knowing that if times get tough, if you are struggling a little bit, you've got a certain amount of time to be able to work your way out of that difficult situation. That is pretty key as well. In fact, if you literally have 1.0 times required capital, from one day to the next, you've got more or less a 50% chance of falling below one times capital. So if you literally had no capital at all, you'd immediately be in, in, in default. So I mean, it's, it's a, maybe a, a trivial way to explain it, but I think this ability, this resilience to allow you to keep on operating is important. And if we do get to the point where we do actually literally fail, trying to mitigate the loss to policyholders and other creditors by having capital available. Now, I do tend to uh, give the banks a hard time. Uh, last time I looked at the numbers, which was before VBS and before African Bank, there'd been a bank failure about every 18 months in South Africa since 1994. I think at the same time, I'm only aware of about two insurers who needed curators. So really do have a, a quite a different uh, setup there. This is the, the ladder of intervention. And when you read the original specification of what the solvency capital requirement was supposed to be from a, a solvency two perspective, 
it actually becomes fairly clear that the regulators seem to have expected that you would hold some number, maybe it could be above or below SCR even, and it would really be the MCR, the minimum capital requirement. That would be the real point to worry about. But if you dip below this one-time solvency capital requirement for a couple of weeks, as long as you had a plan to get out of that, it wouldn't be such a big deal. So under that interpretation, everything above the solvency capital requirement, all your own funds in excess of the solvency capital requirement, really would be your free asset that you could use and you could just distribute to, uh, to, to shareholders. Because in reality, it's a little bit different. You will have some level of target capital above the solvency capital requirements, and that, that sort of flame-burning part there, I guess, that's the part that you might be prepared to burn through if really necessary. So you'll see that it does fall to below the solvency capital requirements because absolutely it would not be unheard of to fall below 1.0 times, and that wouldn't mean the immediate death of your business. But really, you'd want to spend most of your time above that solvency capital requirement threshold. And to my way of thinking, how much variability there is within that, and what the probability of falling below one times SCR and having the regulation involved is, is pretty crucial. Now, this isn't only a starting idea. The Australian regulator also has a prudential capital requirement and explicitly talks about um, a capital above that and a target above that. So th these ideas are fairly similar. Now we're probably moving slightly back in your university education, looking at some basic ideas about a, a loss distribution. And this just makes sure we're on the same page when we talk about some of these terms. So this is a distribution of our losses, and yes, this is losses, so the positive side is still more losses. The top point there is the mode. That's the most likely outcome that's going to happen. And frankly, I think this is probably how we most often set our assumptions. What we think is the most likely thing to happen next year, rather than what is a true probably wasted mean or best estimate. Because this distribution is slightly skewed, there's a, a, a way worse things can happen than good things. Therefore, the mean is slightly higher than the mode. So expected loss, it should be what's factored into our technical provisions already but it's skewed by some of the more extreme losses. The 85th percentile is a, what I'd call a, a very bad year. So it's you know, about a one in seven sort of thing that could happen. It's uh, not impossible. You may well experience some of these in your lifetime. And not that many people know, surprisingly, that the basis for the minimum capital requirements arguably less uh, precisely calibrated than the solvency capital requirement is intended to be the 85th percentile. So if you trust that calibration, we've already got one point on this possible loss distribution. The 99.5th percentile, I told about the, the book deal loss. We've had probably a couple more of those in the last while than we would have liked. And this is the basis for the solvency capital requirement, where the SCR is the 99.5th percentile less our expected loss, which is factored into our technical provisions. So we may not know the exact shape of the overall loss distribution, but we have a range of points that we are already using from our SAM calculations and our solvency two calculations that can inform what the overall, overall distribution looks like. And they just are the mode, mean, 85th percentile or proxy for the minimum capital requirement, and the 99.5th percentile or proxy for the solvency capital requirement. Now, some of you will know of the golden ratio. It's roughly a 1.615 ratio, I think. And 1.615 sounds like quite a reasonable SCR cover ratio, so we could maybe end the presentation there. And you will have read how in nature all these beautiful examples of the golden ratio emerging, and this is a nautilus shell which is famously known to represent the golden ratio, except of course it's not. 
it's not quite the right ratio. It just is, looks beautiful, but it isn't actually the right ratio. So to my mind, is our target capital ratio rational or irrational? Is it something that we, we are trying to aim for, like this uh, Nautilus shelf not quite getting there? Um, what I have noticed is that in every single question from the regulator on an own risk insolvency assessment that I've seen, the question has been, how did you derive your target capital ratio? Now, I suspect they are probably asking because they're quite curious and wanted to know and are trying to form a, an overall industry view. But I think they're also asking because they need to know whether it is sufficient or not. What risks were factored in? How do you consider it? So in order to answer those questions, you've got a few options. You could make up a plausible sounding answer and hope that suffices. You could invest exorbitant amounts of money into a complicated internal capital model that you may uh, never reach the full benefit out of. Or we can try to do something a lot simpler, a lot easier, a lot quicker. And that really is what I'm focused on. So I guess for better or worse, if you have already developed your third internal capital model this year, you may not learn that much from this presentation. Um, now, I started by saying that I get a lot of pressure sometimes for, you know, why can't our capital coverage ratio be 1 or 1.1 or something very, very low? And I'm not saying I necessarily have, you know, the, the overall answer there of what the ratio should be. The approach I'm going to take you through rather describes how you can get a, to a rational, simple point based on your actual risk appetite. But from a European perspective, we are not at the 1.0 or 1.1 perspective. For life insurers in 2016, the median was 2.2. Uh, there was a bit of a range there from 1.5 in Latvia to 2.9 in Germany. Now, this is the median, which does mean that precisely half the entities will have a cover below that, but it does show that the averages are you know, fairly significant. On last side, fairly similar at 2.1. And even though we are at these levels, which some people feel might be elevated, they actually increased on average from 2016 to 2017. The bottom 25th percentile in the UK was just 1.5. Now, literally, only 25% of insurers in the UK had an SCR cover of below 1.5. Um, that last bullet point is, is, to me, quite interesting, and it tells a little bit foreshadowing to how this presentation will go. A, about a quarter of firms would need to re recapitalize after an MCR-level event. In other words, if you took out of their capital the level of MCR, that would get them to below a 1.0 times solvency capital requirement. So again, a quick way of saying, well, would you be below 1.0 times SCR cover every sort of one in seven years or so, given that's where the MCR is calibrated. Now, as you can see, I borrowed the slide from the old uh, Financial Services Board. This just shows a history of the SCR covers. Now, I would have preferred if we'd had something closer to an actual histogram. It can be a little difficult to interpret this. But you see, certainly in Q2 of 2017, Less than a third of insurers had SCR cover of below 1.5. Two thirds were above 1.5. Those who are below one typically aren't intending to be there. That's not their, their, their happy space. They've got various issues that do need to move from. And in fact, there tends to be quite a lot more stickiness at the lower end, just above one, than there is at the higher end. Firms who are with low, have low SCR coverage are typically there for a particular reason and are struggling to move away from that. So again, I'm not sure if all of you have seen or remember this, but from a peer, peer, peer perspective, we really are looking at kind of above 1.5. In fact, the, the biggest grouping there is between two and two and a half, where slightly over a third of respondents uh, have their capital. Now, within some of those very high multiples are some oddities. Uh, there will be the very small insurers whose SDR is actually just 15 million rand and so on. 
There will be, uh, I think, land bank there with a multiple in the tens rather than single digits. So there are some strange ones in that uh, above four. So I wouldn't read too much into the above four category. Certainly, I'm not suggesting that's uh, a, a sensible place to be. Now, reasons to hold more than one times capital, these are fairly well known. Often, the one that gets said is that, well, we need to have capital available for new business, for strategic acquisitions, so we can do cool things with. Um, and, that, and that's fair enough. The, a good theoretical answer is that not all risks are covered in the standard formula. I mean, you might not believe the exact standard uh, formula calibration as well, so whether you need to add in additional risks or treat the calibration, those could be very good reasons for holding more than one times SCR. Building customer or distribution confidence is one where I guess I'm still not convinced how much of a difference it makes in most markets. Uh, I know, you know some asset consultants might look at that from an institutional perspective, uh, some brokers might, might talk about it, but by and large, I'm not convinced that's a particularly uh, big measure. Greater protection for policyholders and creditors. It's a fairly abstract comment, but I guess it is true. You will have better protection. But frankly, the one that I hear most when I'm talking to people about risk and capital rather than talking about regulatory capital coverage is preventing regulatory intervention. That is the one that I believe most of us actually worry about. For senior management, for the board, how are you going to deal with a situation of being below 1.0 times SCR? And that variability. So it's not as often provided as a reason, but in my gut, I actually believe that is probably one of the biggest reasons why we do hold more than one times SCR. Now those are the reasons for, but there are plenty of reasons against it as well, and we do need to recognize these. Dilution of returns to shareholders, and before we feel too sorry for shareholders, the cost of capital is also a cost that often ends up being borne by policyholders. So not only is it just dilution of returns to shareholders, but it potentially is a cost increase to policyholders. Uh, it limits opportunities for investment elsewhere. There's an opportunity cost. We could do something better with that money. That's taking maybe a, a self-interested shareholder perspective, or even a greater economy-wide perspective, saying, is this money best tied up inside insurance companies? And then the old stories of having you know, fancy office blocks and private jets and private lifts and private bathrooms. When you have more than enough capital and there's no pressure on management to manage that capital efficiently, money, gets, money does tend to be wasted. And that last point that I think drives a lot of insurance investment analysts to push for, for capital efficiency. So I'm not talking about the most sophisticated advanced approaches, but I'm just going to describe a very simple, very basic, um, uh, uh, what I believe is an kind of internally consistent rational approach to determining a target capital range. Now, I really spoke about some of those points that we know about on the overall loss distribution, but we know and feel some other things as well. We know it's skewed. Things are very likely, very unlikely to go spectacularly well, but they can unfortunately go spectacularly badly. It's probably leptocurtic, it's probably got heavier tails, the extreme events are maybe more likely than we'd like to believe, and it's probably not normal. Now, of course, if you take a range of different risks, the range of different distributions, and you allow them to be independent, you add them up together, you're probably going to get a distribution that overall is more than less normal. So depending on whether individual risks dominate your solvency capital requirements, and whether the risks you have within your portfolio are highly correlated or not, normal might not be the absolute worst thing to do. Um, but I think we've got pretty good evidence that really normal is a, is a starting point rather than an ending point. 
As I said, we could do a full internal model, although I think most of us, certainly in the life insurance space, have been sort of uh, warned off that. You could do a component buildup, or the primary risks are actually fitting different distributions to individual risks, and the exact line between that and a full internal model also perhaps gets a little bit fuzzy. Or we can basically pick an overall shape for the overall solvency capital requirements, test to see how well it fits in with our expectations and our, our other sensitivity testing, and we go from there. Um, there are a wide range of candidates. A few that I looked at was the normal distribution because we all know and love the normal distribution. And in fact, it is still fairly widely used. Log normal because it allows us to introduce a little bit of skewness and some heavy tails. Gamma uh, for the same reason. And students T, and obviously it depends very much on the number of degrees of freedom that you use, but I included students T distribution because some of the latest uh, uh, surveys of internal model methodologies from Europe has shown an increasing move towards using the student's t-distribution because of its heavy-tailed uh, characteristics. So we'll be playing around with a few of these um, in the, the practical example. Um, okay, so just a reminder. Some of the students, Sam, have invested a lot of technical uh, time and analysis into driving a relatively robust 99.5% for the SCR. So it's not perfect. Um, you know, I am famous for complaining about the retrenchment components, uh, there are other people who complain about the, the, the credit components, even the interest components, but it's there and it's uh, a departure from it, I believe, would require an active decision rather than just, well, we've got a better view based on some work that we did. So trying to be consistent with that would be rational rather than perfect. We also do have an 85th percentile, although I'd be the first to express some concern about how precise that is calibrated to the 85th percentile. And uh, we have the mean because our technical provisions give us the mean uh, uh, loss. So we have three data points potentially that we could use to fit to a range of distributions with two or three uh, parameters. And so what we have here is a slightly uh, oversimplified view that all of these distributions give relatively similar distributions. They all will intersect more or less at the 1.0 mark. So you'll see on the horizontal axis we have multiples of SCR. So one times will be the 99.5th percentile. And on the y-axis, we've got the cumulative distribution uh, probability. So these, these, these various shapes. But we're going to look at this a little bit more closely. So if we look at uh, the intersection at uh, 1.0, we'll see that they are roughly approximately equal. Now, in the fitting process, this required a little bit of shifting of the distributions, a little bit of using solver to find the right parameters, and of course, for the distributions with two parameters and three points trying to fit, we know it's very unlikely we're going to be able to fit them all equally well. So this would be based on a particular calibration. But they all pretty much intersect at the 99.5th percentile, which would be at one times SCR. Now extreme extrapolation beyond that point, I believe, starts to get quite hairy. I think calibrating at a 1 to 200-year level is already pretty difficult. But if we wanted to um, interpolate at some of the views, sorry. If you wanted to interpolate some of these areas over here, it's maybe not quite such a, a, a wide range of departure. So what I've chosen here is just three of the distributions that more or less encompass the range of, of the others. We've got the T distribution with five degrees of freedom. That, incidentally, uh, is the most heavy-tailed uh, of these three distributions. You see that on the left in the green line. The log normal in the middle in blue, which is a little bit heavier-tailed than normal, a little bit skewed. 
And then on the right-hand side, we do still have the overall normal distribution. And say, in certain circumstances, it might not be a terrible fit for the, the data. And what this allows you then to do is to select points from these various distributions to understand what the shocks might be. So if we're going to believe that 85th percentile, that gets us on the student's T distribution to uh, uh, about a 0.28 times SCR. So an MCR type event would take off 0.28 of our SCR from our own funds. But on a log normal front, that would be at 0.4 at the same percentile. Now you may recall the MCR is constrained between, between, between 0.25 and 0.45. So those numbers there really give you some sort of indication of a reasonable range for the distribution. Now, one thing that is maybe slightly counterintuitive is ordinarily, if we were using a more heavy-tailed distribution like the t-distribution, it would be giving us more extreme results. And our capital requirements would be higher. But since we are forcing all these distributions to go through the 1 and 200 or 99.5 percentile points, a more heavy-tailed distribution like the t-distribution actually has a much lower 85th percentile point compared to normal, which is less heavy-tailed because that was a, effectively a more extreme point at the 1 and 200, and far more of the risk is lumped around the middle. So slightly counterintuitively, the more heavy-tailed the distribution that we use, the smaller our uh, uh, lighter shocks will turn out to be. If we move up to the, uh, the 90th percentile, this is the sort of shock that we'd expect to happen maybe one in 10 years. That is a 0.5 of SCR on the uh, normal basis and 0.36 on student's T distribution, and similarly all the way up to a 1 in 20 year event, or the 95th percentile, that's 0.64 and 0.5, so somewhere around there. Now, uh, this does make a bunch of simplifying assumptions. I'm assuming that there's no change in the SCR after the shock, and sometimes that's a pretty decent assumption, and sometimes it's a terrible assumption. The market risk, if you've had a big market risk event and you've lost a lot of your assets, your residual exposure will be smaller and the SCR will probably decrease. Um, we'll talk about uh, uh, some of the others in a moment, but just to be clear, this is the, the starting point and it is a bit of a simplification. Okay, so here's a table of synonyms and we're going to flow through these a few at a time. So you may notice if you've got very sharp eyes that some of these are out by 0.1 compared to the previous graph. That's literally just based on where I managed to pick and select the points on, on the graph, but they're literally just out by point, or not point 0.1, point 0.01. So we could argue that a reasonable range could be anywhere from 1.3. We need to add one to this because this is the shock that would take place in that event, right? So if we wanted to protect ourselves against just a 1 in 7 shock and not breach regulatory 1.0 times SCR with a 1 in 7 probability, and we chose the aggressive T distribution, we'd only need a 1.3 times SCR cover that would protect us from going below 1.0 times SCR, um, six years out of seven. If we wanted to be more conservative and choose a normal distribution, we need to hold 1.41. Now, the color coding here does reflect a bit of a, a subjective view, and you could you know, happily disagree with it. But I feel that 1 and 7 sounds way too aggressive. And oftentimes, the, the challenging conversation with the board here that they want to immediately go to a 1 and 30 or 1 and 50. And have to make the point that, hang on, this is over and above the 1 and 200 protection that you already have from your capital is pretty important. But I think, you know, a 1 and 10, 1 and 20, or 1 and 30 probability um, of breaching a solvency capital requirement could be vaguely sensible. So, taking the SCR standard formula as it is, 
not adding in any buffers for new business or for switching investments, not adding anything for the money that's accumulated before we pay out our dividends, not recalibrating, not changing, not adding, and not changing the risk taxonomy, just based on the simple wanting to avoid breaching SCR cover, you'd probably say somewhere between uh, 1.35 and 1.7. That would be a reasonable starting point. And interestingly, of course, that maps back to quite a lot of insurers in terms of the capital they actually hold, where they aren't running large investment pools and, 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 and money that's being held for other purposes. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, now, 107 does feel a bit too frequent, and 150 does seem a little bit um, overly conservative. But again, um, your board may have a different view. Okay, so some of the assumptions that we made, I think we have gone through those. Um, we are also assuming an instantaneous shock. It also might be controversial. They're saying this shock happens right here, right now. We aren't allowing for any profits over time, aren't allowing for any management actions. Uh, it's uh, a, 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 a relatively onerous uh, uh, message, but also we have been calibrated back to the same SCR assumptions. Um, there's been no allowance for new business strain or future capital needs or liquidity. Um, and you're assuming that there's no buffer for model error or calibration error. So I guess we do need to be worried about adding margin over margin over margin and prudence over prudence, but given that this is a bit of a crude approach, um, there might be appropriate to include some other buffer for uh, model error or calibration differences, or at least choosing a slightly more conservative approach than you might otherwise. But it also fundamentally assumes that you're comfortable modeling the entire distribution in one go your mortality, your motor catastrophe, your expenses, your lapses, your credit spread risk, all together with one overall loss distribution, which is understandably a little bit crude. So we're gonna step a little bit away from that next. So we had the, the benefit of doing some operational risk modeling for some insurers. We have two insurers here represented. These have all been scaled in terms of their own SCR. And the columns that say no insurance this is the operational risk modeling before allowing for their fidelity cover and their risk against fraud and various other operational events. So it is a more extreme version where the one or 200 percentile is much higher and therefore scaled to that, the one or 10 and one or 20 is lower. When you look at the option where we have added in the insurance as risk mitigation, it decreases the one or 200 way more than it decreases the one or 10 and one or 20 same analogy between the difference between the normal distribution and since T distribution, a more aggressive approach actually results in a lower capital uh, for these smaller shocks. And there, if operational risk is a fundamentally, fundamentally important risk for you, if it is the majority of your risk, for example, if you were a LinkedIn insurer, you might be looking at holding something closer to 1.3 or, or 1.8, just on operational risk alone. Same basic principles, but we've added in a little bit of extra information from operational modeling. This is a, a very standard Poisson log normal frequency severity model based on expert judgment uh, uh, setting scenarios. Um, I also, and I think you may not be able to see the little asterisk there. This was taken from a Swiss Re report on influenza pandemic, and I was literally eyeballing the numbers from there. So if the numbers are wrong, that's me, not Swiss Re. Thank you to Swiss Re for making that research available. And they show that an influenza pandemic for South Africa can be very serious. We know this. At a one in 200 year level, that's increasing the mortality uh, uh, significantly above the baseline. But because it is such an extreme, such a catastrophic event, even the one in 50 shock, 
consistent with that, only would require a 0.2 hit on the SCR. Similarly, a 1 in 30 year shock, we're going to lose 0.1 of our SCR from that shock. So there's not much point really worrying about pandemic risk from a 1 of 7, 1 of 10, or 1 of 20. The impact is going to be negligible. So again, if pandemic risk is significant for you, maybe this is some good news. Not that the risk isn't significant from one or two hundred year perspective, but you're very unlikely to see that happening uh, until it happens in a, in a very big way. Okay, now another example, and I just want to be clear about what I'm talking about here. I'm looking at matched market risk for linked investment business. So this isn't the matched assets and liabilities within the linked portfolio itself. This is looking at the market risk for shareholder assets, where we don't have a linked liability in the background, so we do bear market risk. But what happens if we exactly match the asset exposures in our shareholder capital with the average exposure in our linked assets and liabilities? The uh, market just generates SCR, but if the markets fall by half, the vast majority of the capital requirement for those linked business will be linked to asset under management. Asset under management, assets under management halve, the SCR will broadly halve. So the fact that our own shareholder assets have also halved doesn't really matter. Well, it might matter to shareholders, right? But in terms of those breaching one times SCR cover, it's not going to have an impact. So we end up in a slightly bizarre scenario, assuming we're happy to ignore the 15 million absolute minimum, assuming we're happy to put aside uh, 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 some of the, the mass lips and other risks. If you've got a perfectly matched portfolio of shareholder assets that matches your linked asset liabilities, those are the only risks that you have, maybe you don't need to hold such a big multiple of your SCR at all. Now, that's not to say that you don't still have the operational risks um, uh, there. So just because a lot of the operational risk is phrased in terms of asset management, uh, but it's the market risk that you aren't going to have to worry about from a linked market perspective. Okay. But now here's an example of a risk that doesn't actually exist within the solvency capital requirement. As a linked insurer with your solvency capital requirement linked directly to assets under management, if you suddenly have a couple of billion rand of unexpected inflows, your solvency capital requirement is going to go up fairly significantly. And that risk isn't captured anywhere within the solvency capital requirements. So if you assume all SCR arises from assets under management, and 10% you have a new inflow, if that's a reasonable risk that you could have, then you need to hold a buffer of at least 0.1 of SCR against that inflow. I guess there's not an easy way to assess this empirically. The large unexpected inflows would be on institutional business rather than retail business, so you wouldn't really be able to predict it. And also you may often have some levers around when the flows might happen, or even if they could happen, in theory, you could always just say no. So you wouldn't want to take an overly conservative approach there. So in many ways, this is a special case of risks not necessarily covered by the standard formula. But the general principle is to understand the impact of the risk that you have will have on your own funds and SCR, and see whether that needs to be factored in. Okay, now this is one that's been troubling me a lot recently. Mass lapse risk. I'm supposing that under certain conditions for mass lapse risk, we might not need a capital buffer at all. And the trick is that you need to have these very special cases that would apply. Let me paint a scenario. Every single one of your policies is profitable and very, very similar. 
therefore you have a mass lapse exposure to all of them because you have negative technical provisions. And let's say, as is often practically the case, the combined uh, lapse event isn't much different from the mass lapse events. You also don't pay out any surrender values. So on surrender, it's nothing but a reduction in your negative technical provisions, which is a hit to own funds. It is a hit to shareholder value, um, but it's not a direct cash outflow. We're also going to ignore the expense component of the mass lapse item. There's a whole bunch of assumptions that we do need to make here. And we're also going to ignore, again, the operational risk and the absolute minimum capital requirements. In that case, whatever your own, the reduction in your own funds is going to be, it will never, um, it will decrease proportionately with your SCR. If you have a 10% mass lapse, you'll lose 10% of your negative technical provisions and probably close to 10% of your own funds if you've got other financial assets that won't move, but your solvency capital requirement itself will decrease by 10%. So from a mass lapse, there's basically no way to actually end up having just that single event that's the only risk that you have, if these assumptions apply, actually pushing you to below 1.0 times solvency capital requirement, which is quite a, a bizarre thing for, for me. But I guess what is a fairly clear conclusion is you are definitely going to need to understand the different components of your risk and while you can get a useful starting point from an overall calibration to the overall SCR, if you have any risks that are particularly big, you're going to need to uh, pay particular attention to them. Now, you can use the same sort of underlying approach to get a reasonable estimate for a negative risk. So in this case, we've assumed something very straightforward. Um, I so you can either use your earnings of risk scenarios and sensitivities as a check on whether these other shocks that you're using in determining your target capital ratio, whether they're sensible or reasonable, or we can just actually derive these shocks from the model you put together. If we assume a 25% return on capital, and let's say it is both the target and what we actually expect to happen, and we've got 1.5 times SCR cover, that means depending on which distribution we're going to use, and if your earnings follows the exact pattern as your change in own funds would, you're going to have a 10 to 17% annual probability of negative earnings. For a lot of people, that would be a fairly key risk appetite measure as well. What we're saying there is, if you're expected to make 25% on your 1.5 times capital, um, what is the shock that you're going to need to move uh, from about the 0.7 or so uh, down to 1.0 times uh, earnings to give you negative earnings? It does ignore SAP 104 margins, ignore zeroization. On the non-last side, it would ignore any higher percentile than the best estimate you'd be holding from a reserving perspective. Um, ignores zeroization. And unfortunately, of course, it also ignores IFRS 17 contractual service margins, which is going to complicate the modeling quite a lot in future. So this is basically a high-level summary of the process. You need to first recognize that the probability of SCR breach is a key uh, measure with new risk appetites. I'm being a little bit pushy here and saying that you need to recognize that it exists. You could turn around and say, nope, no, it doesn't for us. We, we know that, thank you, but we actually don't believe it. But again, in the conversation that I have, I keep hearing people talking about this as something that actually would matter to them. So if you do, or once you have recognized that the probability of breaching SCR is key to risk appetites, you then could find some consistent calibration using the information you have from ESCR and from MCR and your mean. You may have other information from the scenarios that you looked at from your author. You may have an earnings risk model that you could also factor in there. You may have fitted some distributions and done some work already. 
you could use all those various points to come up with an overall calibration to either the overall risk or to some subset of components being careful on things like mass lapse and potentially market risk and operational risk. Uh, I did mention I'll come back to where the change in SCR after the event isn't necessarily appropriate. So even retrenchment risk, which is probably one of the bigger decrements, a two or three or four-fold increase in retrenchment is still going to have a relatively modest impact on the overall size of your book. There's going to have a relatively modest impact on decreasing your SCR. The mass lapse is the other example, along with market risk, where the event happening has a very, very direct, very, very clear impact on your SCR, and that's why that might require a little bit of extra attention. Now, once you've got that calibration, you can determine what your points might be, one or 10, one or 20 years of shock. Pull those numbers ask to see what your target capital ratio might be before factoring in any other capital buffers. That would be calibration, new business, dividends, investment, fungibility, or because maybe you just really, really, really do want that new private jet. And then you need to talk about the implications of the current capital target. It might be that you're currently way above that. And the pressure might be then to say, well, actually, there isn't a robust objective uh, reason for holding that much capital, and maybe a special dividend is in, in, in need. Or it might be justification for increasing your target capital level. And if my experience is, is similar to yours, what then happens is we go back and look at the model and see about changing the calibration, seeing where we can kick the tires, trying desperately to force our model to fit the experience and intuition that we have. And, that, and that's okay. There's no problem with that being a circular iterative process, but at least you have a framework for deciding whether 1.3 or 1.4 really is sufficient. And once you've been through that process, you can now basically refine your target capital. I've labeled this also known as the starting point, because these really are very much precursor steps along the journey towards getting to what a robust approach would be to defining your, your capital target. Now, there are a range of uh, other areas where this could be used. I've touched on some of them. Um, it's obviously a key input into your also. We actually do need to talk about uh, your, your target capital. And in fact, there are GOIs, I forget the number now, but there's a GOI that specifically requires you to talk about how you get to your target capital ratio and your numbers. So not only is the regulator actually expecting you to hold more than one times um, SCR, they're expecting you to talk about how you got to that point. In the scenarios and sensitivities that you choose in your also, you may use this approach to get some of the sensitivities as well. Um, and when you're trying to calibrate your IFRS 17 risk adjustment, trying to work out exactly how sufficient your IFRS liabilities are if you use the cost of capital approach to determine your risk adjustment, it can be quite a useful, crude approach to get back to a useful number. Um, last year, I gave a talk on dividend policy and understanding the possible variability in earnings and dividends was key to that. This could be a reasonably useful tool to get you back to a point around uh, dividend policy, more sort of buffer you'd expect there. Um, I've tried to highlight some of the obvious flaws in the simplifier approach like this as we've gone, but it might be worthwhile just um, re re refreshing those and adding some extra ones. If your profile isn't standard, it's not going to work. If you don't believe the standard formula, your first step is actually going to be to adjust your standard formula for the risks. In that case, you may need to do some thinking about fitting separate distributions to those risks in any case. Um, <clears throat> but I think for me, the, arguably the biggest danger here is that rather than engaging in a robust discussion on what target capital should be and how much capital we need, we could do a you know, 12-cell Excel model, split style results, they would actually place too much confidence in the results rather than really questioning and kicking the tires on where those numbers might uh, get out to be. 
So overall, this isn't the answer to uh, a complicated capital model, but hopefully can provide a useful, quick tool to talk about capital and talk about how much capital is needed. And maybe have a sense check on where you've been in the past with your, with your capital requirements. Um, I think we've finished with plenty of time, so I'm also happy to, to take any questions. One is you've talked about um, the solvency ratio. Uh, you haven't talked about the solvency ra The volatility of the solvency ratio has been uh, an important topic. Um, and and uh, what I've seen is people uh, sort of come running in and say, well, if it goes below 170, I've got to do some sort of management actions. 160, I'm going to do other management actions, et cetera. So, so volatility, so that's the first question. Um, the second question is, is this definition of a solvency ratio actually the most useful thing to use? Um, it is volatile, it depends on all sorts of things, the, the, the modeling and, and issues that you've shown. Is own funds divided by an SCR, which is a one in 200 year figure-ish, um, is that the right ratio to use or should, is there some other better ratio that people ought to be using uh, compared to Bell or a nominal number or something else? Yeah, thanks for the questions. Um, in terms of the volatility, I think the, the idea of the, what uh, the, the shocks could happen what impact the shock could have on your SCR is tied very tightly into variability of, of that ratio. So you could use the exact same techniques with the exact same distributions to work out actually how volatile do you expect it to be. And if that's really what you worry about, particularly from an external investor focus, um, then it'd be more a question of deciding what management actions are you going to take place in your business to, to moderate that, because that will be uh, almost a straight function of the SCR itself. In the, the old world where we had a capital adequacy requirement in the long-term insurance world, it was very standard to have a fairly wide range of capital adequacy requirements that could be shown and then use management actions or more and less management actions to keep that number relatively stable. So it was a, a useful tool to manage the appearance of stability even though the actual numbers uh, could be moving around quite a lot. So uh, the, the volatility may be awkward, but I think we may be on a better position of actually being able to show and demonstrate that yes, there is economic variability happening here. There, is, there are real risks rather than papering, uh, papering over it. Um, I actually would probably prefer not to have this, uh, the SCR coverage ratio as the first and foremost number. I'd much rather take a step back and say, well, actually, what are our risk appetite measures that relate, results in a certain target capital ratio? And that could be an earnings at risk, it could be a probability of SCR breach, it could be an SCR volatility. Expressing those and having your SCR coverage ratio come out of that as a, a product rather than the, the starting point, to me is more, more concrete. Well, maybe, maybe the answer is that maybe it's less concrete, it's more, more reliable, it's more relevant. But if you're now trying to price a product and you wanted to know what amount of capital are you going to allow for, Sometimes having this crude rule of thumb that can use an allocated number is, can be quite useful. Um, I know some people have uh, looked at uh, rather the SCR multiple, rather what is the SCR as percentage of own funds, maybe arguments about that being useful. But given the, the ability of particularly things like mass lapse to have a very, very distorting impact, well, I guess, well, uh, negative technical provisions from capitalized future profits and the corresponding mass lapse having a very distorting impact on owned funds and SCR, I think there that, that means that comparators between the SCR coverage ratios between insurers um, can, be, can be quite problematic. Thank you. Uh, it's Johan from Old, uh, Old Mutual. Uh, so I just want to ask, so uh, in SAM at least we have two different cover ratios. If you're a big enough insurer, you have 
cover ratios for every uh, regulated entity, and then you'd have a cover ratio for the group as a whole. Um, and my question is, would you treat them differently? Uh, in this, in your approach? Yeah, I think you'd have to. I mean, th this approach, again, is a very simple approach. I think it works relatively well. It's kind of good bang for buck rather than perfect at a solar entity. But as soon as you go into a group structure with uh, removal of intra-group uh, transfers and fungibility issues, I'm not at all convinced that a simple approach at the high level would actually work. Um, so, and, and I guess arguably from a pure solvents perspective, that's uh, less important and at a group level you really are worried more about fungibility of capital and whether the capital is being held within the entities and at the, at, at the group. So no, I basically wouldn't recommend this as a, a part of the right starting point at a, at, a, at a group level. Thanks. Do you think enough attention is paid to model risk? And we heard yesterday a little bit about the weakness of the, the approximations on the risk margin. And I'm just wondering whether that could not be a, a bigger influence than some of the actual uh, impact from, from experience, let's say. Yeah, I mean, it's an easy question. No, I don't think we pay enough attention to model risk. Um, I remember many years back, had a, a new, very, very smart graduate join the team, and he put his model together, and he gave it to me, and I said it's wrong. Now, it's mostly just you know, trying to be annoying, I guess. Um, he said, no, that's, that's, that's going to be right. And the point is, we all know that the first time you build a model, especially, you know, slightly, be slightly more junior, Hanron, it is guaranteed to be wrong. The only question is how wrong it might be and whether the results are up by an order of magnitude or not. Um, many of us have had significant model development in the last three, four, five years. For 17, it's only kind of growing further. Uh, there, there, there will be areas, there will be differences. I don't think that is reason, though, to say, well, let's actually kind of just discard the approaches and the methodologies. What I described here is basically at least an internally consistent approach where you can use the same models that you have. Um, I think in practice it would make absolute sense to add on some buffer, and no, I don't have a, a yet a, a good way to determine that buffer, over all these minimums to allow for the fact that from one year to the next you may discover an error that may swing the other way. Um, in the last couple of years I've seen, you know, hundreds of million rand swings on balance sheets that really couldn't uh, afford it from errors that have, you know, crept through over time. Uh, along with understating model risk, I think we have an understated view of operational risk in general. Uh, and the distribution of operations that get plugged into here can also be pretty key to, to affect the overall results. Do you think, should we be talking more about the, the cost of this capital really? Because like we say it's important from like policyholder confidence, but as a policyholder if it hits one and the FSB takes, or the regulator takes over and drives the book home, is that really such a bad outcome for me? Is there not maybe a little bit of imp like indirect empire building than saying we want to be able to survive a one in 50 just means I like having a job next year. Um, and even from the shareholders perspective, what is that costing them in terms of dilution to now have a slightly more stable dividend stream as opposed to riding it closer to the edge? Uh, I, like, I like the analogy I wanted to keep the job. Um, when we run these operational workshops, two of the scenarios that we test is like a, well, we take, test a typical scenario and a one in 20 and a one in 100. Uh, the one in 20 scenario said, this is a really bad thing that m something like it may well happen to you twice in your career. You know, one in 50, maybe you might just escape it, but it, it, you know, it does become a personal, personal thing. If your insurer is going to fail at the same time as everybody else, meh, who cares, right? Hard to get blamed for that. Even though it's arguably going to have a bigger impact on policyholders than one insurer failing on their own. 
So it's also missing from this analysis is this distinction between this is an entity-specific risk, an entity-specific scenario, and in it we'd be out left hang, hanging dry versus this actually is going to be systemic. And I think uh, it, it does have an impact. Whether it should, whether we're holding too much capital overall is an interesting question. Um, I think if you put it to a, a, a board of directors, are you happy with a one in five year uh, possibility of falling below 1.0 times? They would be the first ones to worry about their fiduciary responsibility and maybe their liability as well. Um, uh, as I said when we started, I think Solvency 2 maybe originally had, had this perspective that breaching SCR wouldn't be quite so bad, it would all be, be okay. Across Europe there's been a lot of talk about gold plating and having individual national regulators want to make their regulations even harsher, even harder than, than, than others. As in the results show that we are holding a lot more capital. Um, I've had lots of discussions with clients around cost of capital and, and where this capital is going to come from. Uh, some slides I left out also show the impact of chairing of capital and whether you get different results with um, ancillary and funds. So there are some other interesting avenues there that may be able to reduce the cost of capital. But if you are prepared to take a market consistent embedded value type, look at this. Uh, the, the costs of capital are maybe less than we would have believed and felt under a more traditional approach. If you're going to say that your required return on capital is 25%, and whether you happen to have that invested in a, a, a group life business, or equities, or uh, T-bills, you're still going to demand the same 25% return on capital. If that's what you're going to say, it's going to look like this massive, massive burden, this massive cost. But if you can say, actually, well, if I'm invested in market rates, at market risk, in market T-bills, then the return I'm getting shouldn't be a direct cost, and my over-required return on that should be uh, similar to that. Then you are just left with the traditional ideas of frictional costs and, and double taxation, some which are not uh, uh, imaginary, but they may be smaller than demanding we turn a massive risk discount rate on all the capital that we hold. So yes, I agree there is a cost of capital, policyholders may well bear it, maybe breaching 1.0 times SCR isn't that bad, but I think we can also overset the cost of that capital uh, if we aren't intelligent. I think we have time for one more question. Okay. Um, I can't see any hands going up, so thank you, David, very much. I think it's very, certainly for me, these are the kind of discussions I'm having with my, the board, my boards at the moment, um, and kind of how do we decide what is an appropriate level of capital and what we can survive. So I think it's been very useful. Thank you very much. Thank you, thank you everyone.